All right, then, get yourself comfortable, ladies and gentlemen, as we are back for another episode of That Racing History Podcast, presented, as always, by me, Aidan Millward. Hope all is well, whether you're cleaning the house, trapped in M6 tailbacks, or just about to head to bed, wherever you're consuming this, and however you're consuming this, hope you're having a great day. Now, today, That Racing History Podcast takes a trip back to the 90s to look at an absolute legend of Formula One. And it's not a driver, it's a team owner. One of the all-time greats, at least in my own opinion anyway. And that is the story of Edmund Patrick Jordan, or as we commonly know him, Eddie. Eddie was born in Dublin, Republic of Ireland, on the 30th of March 1948, the son of Eileen and Paddy Jordan. Now the Jordans had to move out of Dublin because Eddie had contracted a form of pink disease, which is a painful skin condition in children caused by living in areas where said children are constantly exposed to heavy metals. And by heavy metals, I mean stuff like mercury rather than Megadeth. The family moved to Bray, where his condition improved. And, you know, I can relate to that, having moved out of the black country to Lincolnshire because of my asthma. Apparently, pollution kills people. Pollution... Well, actually, no, pollution kills people, and pollution kills people. It works both ways. His educational studies were hard and brutal. He spent 11 years at Sing Street Christian Brothers School where he and his fellow pupils would get absolutely battered if they didn't study hard enough. And while there, he briefly entertained the possibility of becoming a priest. But not like the ones on Father Ted. His family, on the other hand, had other ideas. They wanted him to become a dentist instead, and he took on his first job as a bank clerk at the Bank of Ireland branch in Mullinger. Then there was a banking strike, so he moved to Jersey in the summer of 1970, where on the small island he discovered karting. And he turned out to be an okay driver. When he returned to Dublin, he bought a kart and began racing in the Irish Championship in 1971, which he won. By 1974, he was in single-seaters and won in various categories, but a smash at Mallory Park badly broke his left leg. And I've actually driven Mallory Park. It's pretty damn quick, so in cars with 1970 safety levels... Yeah, I'm not surprised. After dabbling in a few other lower category series, in 1979, Eddie decided he'd be better off forming his own team. Eddie Jordan Racing's first drivers were David Sears and David Leslie. One is the son of famed BTCC driver Jack Sears, and the other is David Leslie. There's actually no gag there, Leslie was actually a decent driver. And Eddie developed a reputation for being a bit of what we Brits will call a bit of a wheeler-dealer a bit of a real-life Del Boy trotter from Only Fools and Horses. In 1988, a young Essex boy called Johnny Herbert was racing for Eddie in Formula 3000, which later became GP2 and now F2. And Johnny's father was a working-class electrician, and he was struggling to find the money required to pay for his son's career. And Eddie was running on borrowed time because he needed Johnny to pony up some cash so that Johnny and the Jordan team could race. The only sponsor on the car was that of Cloud Insurance, who even today still run the insurance policies for many racing drivers in the UK. But Johnny, despite the money getting thin, was competitive. The F3000 teams headed for Hereth, where Herbert managed to get pole position. Now, Eddie, being a clever thinker, called up Duncan Lee, who was the head of Camel Cigarettes. And at that time, Camel had got a sponsorship program running in Formula 1, most prominently with Lotus, but they were also sponsoring Pierre-Luigi Martini personally. So Eddie called up Duncan and said, Duncan, I've got this guy. He's a good driver. He's a superb driver. He's probably, now I'm going to say probably, the next big thing. No, 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 definitely, he's definitely the next big thing. You need to look at this. Look at this kid. Look at Johnny Herbert. Johnny Herbert is great, believe me. But Duncan just said, 
Eddie, I can't. We we don't have any budget left. We've done the Formula One stuff, and we've got our guys in the juniors. We just can't take anybody else on right now. now. The thing is, Eddie didn't understand the word no, and was, no, seriously, Duncan, this kid's got pole position. He's going to Formula One. Look, let's have a meeting next Tuesday. Let's discuss this. But Duncan stood firm. Eddie, I can't. And this went on and on and on until Duncan gave him the meeting. So after putting the phone down, Eddie goes over to Pierluigi Martini's team and asks them if they've got any spare stickers lying around for camel cigarettes. And he got one of the ones that go on the side of the transporters. Sure, you can borrow it, they said, although I'm not exactly sure how you borrow a sticker, but you know, this is interesting, so I'm just going to roll with it. Eddie put the two camel stickers on the side pods of Herbert's car. Bear in mind that Eddie hadn't even had the meeting at this point. They'd only agreed to a time and place. And Eddie was going around applying logos of people that weren't even giving him any money on the racing car. And then Herbert won the race. So Eddie had a picture of the car with the logos on, sold to Autosport for a decent sum of money. And Autosport put the car on the front cover. Eddie then had the meeting on the Tuesday, by which time the photos had been published, and he'd effectively trapped Lee. And by the Wednesday he got the sponsorship money from Camel. This is a smart man we're dealing with here. Now, unfortunately for both parties, Herbert would have his famous smash at Brands Hatch where his legs were badly injured. And in the crash, his leg, and I can't remember which one of his legs, was forced upwards into the hip joint and caused horrific internal injuries. You know, oof, F and all that. But despite this shortcoming, Eddie soldiered on. And he'd been tinkering with the idea of taking his little junior team and taking it to the next level. Eddie was now involved with a cigarette brand that was working with a Formula One team. Camel and Lotus's relationship had deteriorated, as at the end of 1987, Ayrton Senna had announced he was off to McLaren, and Jordan was the manager of Martin Donnelly, who also, ironically, had a major accident in a car with Camel cigarette logos on it. So, with his relationship with drivers, Camel and Lotus, Eddie was seriously considering buying Lotus with Camel's money, similar to what Ron Dennis had done with McLaren. But it didn't work. So using his own money, Eddie created the Jordan F1 team in the winter of 1989, and hired Gary Anderson, Andrew Green and Mark Smith as designers. And with just a team of 33 people, most of whom had come along from the F3000 team, they'd got a car designed by the end of October 1990. Instead of attracting companies the proper way, with a brochure, a suit and other stuff, Eddie decided to take the car to the businesses he wanted to sponsor the team and show them what his team had built, so they could touch it, feel it, meet the guys who built it and learn more about what their money was going towards. He was also able to prove it worked and would run, sticking a Cosworth engine in the back. He'd already struck up a deal with the Irish Tourism Office, so naturally the car was painted green. Well, that and the fact that Eddie's Irish, obviously. But there is an interesting story behind how Eddie Jordan, a newbie to Formula 1, was able to get Pepsi to sponsor the team. What Eddie had done was compile a scrapbook of every company on planet Earth that had green in their logo or corporate scheme. Parallel Media, who specialise in finding teams or events a sponsor, helped them out by giving them a colour print of 7up. And the deal itself was worth about $2 million dollars, which for a multi-billion dollar corporation was only a tiny amount, and they wouldn't miss two million that much. And once Pepsi was on board, Eddie chased down Fujifilm. And he chased them hard. But Eddie got the deals he wanted. 
and he also managed to get Tic Tac, Shui, the Japanese helmet company, BP, and Asama to sponsor the team, Asama being the Milan-based stationery company. But there was a small issue regarding the name of the car. The car's chassis number was the 911, so you can imagine that a certain Stuttgart-based sports car company was not too keen on someone else using a number they trademarked. A letter was sent, and Eddie ignored it. A few weeks later, another letter came, this time a bit more forceful in the tone, and Eddie headed to Porsche UK's offices to confront Porsche's Bundeswehr of lawyers. He's saying, I can't rename the car now because the season's about to start, and I'd have to rebrand the entire team. So Porsche said, would a brand new car make this happen faster? So Eddie took this brand new Carrera, renamed the chassis the 191, and entered it. The change cost him nothing, which was probably for the best. The car was named the 911 and had a Sama written on the side, and you know what conspiracy theorists are like. Eddie Jordan makes the frogs gay! Given the absolute write-off that was the life team 12 months earlier, Everything the Little Jordan team did in 1991 seemed like a massive fluke. Bertrand Gascho and Andrea de Cesaris scored points in Canada, Mexico, France, Britain and Germany. Then Gascho was arrested and sent to HMP Brixton for assaulting a London taxi driver. Enter some kid from Hearth, West Germany. Eddie Jordan had been given a deal he couldn't refuse. Mercedes paid him $150,000 for this kid to drive in his first Formula 1 race in the place of the imprisoned Belgian. But that debut race may never have happened if not for some intervention from F1's Dark Lord of the Sith. Eddie owed some guys some money. Typical. In sensible places like the UK, Ireland, the United States, Italy and so on, you apply for an injunction and then go to court provided you tell the person you're in dispute with that you're going to court. In Belgium, you don't. So the Belgian Sweeney arrived and impounded the two green cars. Bernie heard what was going on, and sent a bloke on a motorbike to every gate around the spa circuit and collected all of the money from each one. They used ticket money from the Belgian Grand Prix to pay off Eddie Jordan's debts. Long story short, race started, German kid burns out his clutch and then leaves for Benetton. Eddie then got an injunction in Italy for $2 million. And he needed it. Jordan had finished 5th in the 1991 Constructors' Championship, and both cars had escaped pre-qualifying on almost every occasion. But Eddie had started the season with $5 million in the bank, and ended the season $5 million in the red. He'd spent $10 million with only $5 million to spend. Now Lola in 1997 was $6 million down after just one race, so Eddie at least had an opportunity at getting some of that money back. So enter Sasol, the South African oil company, and a supply of free Yamaha engines. Now, Eddie said in an interview with the Irish Independent that if not for Yamaha, the team would have folded because Ford alone would have priced them out. And Bernie helped EJ feel a bit better by saying, sure, your engines are a bit crap, but better to still be here in 1993 than be gone halfway through the season. 1992 was a struggle, but the team still scored a point. Then in 1993, Eddie managed to get Brazilian Rubens Barrichello, who was Ayrton Senna's protégé and also had Marlborough backing. The other car was driven by a revolving door of paid drivers, and one of these drivers, called Marco Acapella, only lasted 400 yards at Monza, becoming one of the shortest F1 careers of all time, and another of these drivers gained a reputation for being a bit mouthy and getting himself into trouble. Eddie Irvine Senna had confronted Irvine as Eddie had dared to unlap himself at Suzuka, and Eddie was given the Belfast sunglasses for the trouble. 
1994, Irvine picked up a three-race ban after being judged to have caused a crash involving himself, Jos Verstappen and Martin Brundle, which resulted in Brundle being hit in the head by Verstappen's car. It was initially a one-race ban, but was upgraded to three when Jordan appealed. Then two races later at Imola, Barrichello was involved in the shunt at Variante Bassa where he was badly injured, and only after intervention from Professor Sid Watkins was his life saved. Barrichello was the second in a slew of accidents that season that could have resulted in at least six drivers being killed, including the two who were actually killed. But despite the accident, Rubens returned to racing and scored Jordan's first pole position at Spa, beating the likes of Michael Schumacher and Damon Hill to the front spot on the grid. And despite Irvine being crash-happy, Eddie kept him on, increasing his stock and building him up so that he could be sold on to another team, much like they do in football. At the end of 1995, Irvine was sold to Ferrari, and EJ got something in the region of about $14 million for it, of which Irvine got five. Going into 1996, Jordan unveiled a new colour scheme, as it was out with the turquoise, white, blue, red and green of before, and in with gold as EJ had signed a multi-year, multi-million deal with Benson and Hedges, and in turn had also signed the experienced Martin Brundle, who replaced Irvine while keeping Barrichello. At the first round of the 1996 season, Brundle was involved in a massive accident as he barrel-rolled off at Turn 3, much like Alonso would about 20 years later. The team would be consistent point scorers in an era where only the top six scored, before Barrichello would leave to join Sir Jackie Stewart at his Stewart Grand Prix team, and then Brundle would retire to join Murray Walker in the commentary booth, as the UK F1 coverage moved from the BBC to ITV. The drivers were replaced by the hotly rated Italian Giancarlo Fisichella, who, in my opinion, is probably the best driver in a mediocre car, and Ralph Schumacher, the younger brother of The Michael. Fisichella would score 20 points over the season to finish 8th in the standings, while Ralph was 11th with 13. The team with the combined points tally would then be 5th in the Constructors, 30 points off McLaren in 4th, but with a 12-point gap to Prost. Then, for 1998, Jordan would score the biggest signing in the team's history. Fisichella would be off to Benetton, but Eddie had in return signed the 1996 world champion, Damon Hill, this being after his one-year stopgap contract at Arrows had expired. And with Hill came the team's first ever victory a win that Eddie maintains was a fluke. I am talking about the 1998 Belgian Grand Prix, a race where most of the field was wiped out before Eau Rouge and torrential rain conditions at the first attempt at the start, and then Hakkinen was taken out at the second attempt. Hill had managed to get into the lead in the melee, but then Michael Schumacher took the lead for Ferrari before a mix-up while lapping David Coulthard wiped out the German as well, putting Hill into the lead and Ralph into second. Now we could argue until the cows come home as to whose fault it was, but at the end of it all, Eddie said Damon should not have won, as Ralph was the faster driver. But Eddie gave his reasons as to why that wasn't the case. The main one was Michael. Michael was the reason. Michael Schumacher, the rainmaster, had been wiped out in the race, either because Coulthard had taken him out or because he decided to pull back into the spray instead of going the long way around the McLaren. Again, we can argue all day, all night about that. But any hardcore Damon fan can say that Damon was not as good as Michael. Not many people are or were. Probably Senna, Hamilton, Clark and Stewart are the only ones who can be mentioned in the same breath when it comes to talking about wet weather masters. And if the Michael could wipe himself out or get himself wiped out, then there was every reason Ralph and Damon could do it to each other. Eddie was also under pressure from Benson and Hedges and Mugen for results because they'd been poor up until this point. 
so Eddie made a decision that would annoy a few people, but at the same time keep the team alive. Hold position. Ralph must not overtake Damon. Even Damon lifting off on a straight or moving wide into a corner to let Ralph through could have resulted in an accident. It was business. The feelings of drivers and their fan bases mattered little at this point in time. Then after the race, Michael burst into Eddie's office, and Eddie assumed Michael was there to congratulate the man who had given his first F1 start, and not only that, won a race where Michael had started his career, and where four years prior the team had had its first pole position. But no. Michael was angry that Eddie hadn't told Damon to move over for his little brother to take a win. It was a bit of a double whammy for Michael. Ralph was family, and he and Damon weren't exactly friends. So Eddie said, Look, Ralph has been driving for me for years, and not once have you taken an interest. The last time I saw you was when you fucked off to Benetton thinking you were smart, but I still took you for two million. Now fuck off out of my office. Michael then said something along the lines of, I'll make sure my brother never drives for you again, to which Eddie responded with, I'm not sure if you're familiar with these things called contracts, Michael. There's a buyout clause in there. You want your brother back? Pay it, and he's yours. So Michael paid the buyout clause, meaning that Eddie had taken both Schumacher brothers for a combined $4.5 million. To Eddie's amusement, Ralph went to Williams where it took him two and a bit years to win a race, and in return, Eddie got Heinz Howard Frentzen for free, with whom he won two races in 1999 and finished third in the championship. If Damon had been blessed with the same luck and had the same form, Jordan could have been with a very realistic shot of second in the constructors, not just the third they ended up with. In his own words, fuck me, that gave me one hell of an erection. But Eddie may have been a bit premature with that erection, because 1999 was as good as it got. Results tumbled. Frentzen managed to get a third in Brazil and at Indianapolis with Trulli getting a fourth at Brazil and some sixth place finishes, which was good enough for sixth in the championship, but there were too many retirements to do anything like the previous season. A win for Giancarlo Fisichella at a confusing and chaotic 2003 Brazilian Grand Prix was as good as it got for the rest of Jordan's time in F1. There was too much political manoeuvring and pressure from Honda to field a Japanese driver, which Eddie did with Takuma Sato, a man who, now at the time of writing, has two Indy 500s to his name. There was also the changing corporate aspect of the sport. Eddie and the team had a rock and roll image. They were doing what Hesketh had done previously and a bit of what Red Bull is doing now, and with the dying out of the tobacco sponsorship in the sport, this wasn't able to happen as much as nobody could show off any logos. He would hire supermodels to pose with the car at launch, one of those supermodels being Katie Price, aka Jordan. So Jordan cars would be surrounded by fake boobs and spandex. They were also sponsored by PlayStation, a console that had Lara Croft and, to a lesser extent, Jill Valentine as 90s sex symbols. They were as 90s as 90s could be. The only thing missing would probably be Blur's country house on repeat on the stereo. The independent man was being squeezed out of F1, as Mercedes, Ferrari, Toyota, Ford, Renault, BMW and Honda were all having a bigger presence in the sport, either with their own teams or being associated with existing ones. Honda even offered to buy out the team before buying BAR, but a mistake in 2003 left Eddie effectively needing to sell. He'd taken Vodafone to court over an alleged verbal contract he'd made with the company, only for them to go off and sponsor Ferrari instead which left Eddie out of pocket by quite a bit of money. 
But since Eddie had no proof of this verbal contract, the court sided with Vodafone, and Eddie had to pay all costs associated with the lawsuit. It's not known exactly how much Vodafone should have given him, but in the court case, Eddie tried to take Vodafone for $150 million. So he sold the team in 2004, and the team carried on as Jordan through 2005 before being rebranded Midland F1 in 2006, Spiker for 2007, and then became Force India, Racing Point, and is now the Aston Martin Formula 1 team. As Minardi was in the hands of Paul Stoddart, Sauber was part-owned by Red Bull and had a partnership with Ferrari, and Frank Williams was in bed with BMW, Eddie Jordan really was the last of the independent men. He sold the team for £70 million and went into retirement before returning as a pundit for the BBC's F1 coverage, where he became known as the guy who got everything first. He was the first to get news of Michael Schumacher returning to Formula 1, and the first to get news of Lewis Hamilton moving to Mercedes, which other journalists called made up with no basis for even suggesting, and all of them in turn called the move stupid. He moved with the broadcast team to Channel 4 and later took up a part-time presenting gig for the revamped Top Gear series following the departure of Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond and James May. He also plays the drums and had a band called V10 which was often found performing at the British Grand Prix and other events, but the DNA of that band continues as the band Eddie and the Robbers. He also has a yacht in Monaco and has written for boating magazines and also wrote his autobiography called Independent Man where he details his life up to, through and after Formula One. Eddie Irvine, Rubens Barrichello, Johnny Herbert, Martin Brundle, Damon Hill, Giancarlo Fisichella, Heinz Harald Frentz and Nick Heidfeld, Takuma Sato and the Schumacher brothers. Eddie had a knack for finding talent and developing it to go on to bigger things. And he told it how it was. He'd probably have no place in F1 today. He really was the last Garage Easter. The last of the independents. The man who did it his way until that way didn't work anymore and he managed to leave the sport with a nice retirement fund. We shouldn't cry that it'll never happen again more. We should be happy it happened. So this is it for the story of Eddie Jordan, one of F1's true characters. If you've enjoyed this, please share the love by liking this on YouTube, subscribing to the YouTube channel for more if that's where you're listening to things, and if you're listening to this on Spotify where it will be released a couple of days later, please share the hell out of this while clicking follow to try and grow this into a, uh, a more of a hub for all racing history content. You know, like I say, episodes debut on YouTube and then go on Spotify a little bit later. That Racing History Podcast is a Patreon-backed show, and if you wish to help support this podcast or just my YouTube channel in general at a more personal level, then you can do so by heading to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash Aidan Millward. That's A-I-D-A-N-M-I-L-L-W-A-R-D. So Aidan with an A and not an E. And you can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and all that good stuff. And there is also a Discord where you can join in the chat there. For YouTube listeners, all that stuff is handily in the description box for you. So until next time, I've been Aidan Mild with That Racing History Podcast. Have a great day wherever you are, and goodbye.